0: Hey, before we get into God's Word, you'll notice in the bulletin, there's an insert that mentions our spiritual growth opportunities here at the church. As you know, our mission is to reach the lost, and we're going to continue to add outreaches, and we're going to be intentional about reaching those who are lost in our community. We want to sow the seed of the gospel to as many people as we can in this area and beyond. And by the way, this Saturday we're going to the Dublin Bridge. We're setting up a table. We're going to be serving Dirt Dutchman Donuts. There's a farmer's market there. A lot of people come. We'll be going the last Saturday every month. We'll spread out. Some will be at the table. So if you're interested in helping serve those donuts, join us. So we're going to be adding more outreaches, but we're not just committed to reaching the lost. We want to help believers grow. Whether you're a new believer Whether you've been a believer for a while, our vision and mission is to help people grow into Christ's likeness. And one of the mechanisms that we use to help people grow is not just Sunday morning, but small group ministry. So I want to encourage you get connected to a small group. As we grow gradually, as we get bigger, we want to get smaller, which means connect to a small group. A lot of times Christians complain, you know, I don't know anybody at the church. Not here, I haven't heard those complaints, but people think that. And ultimately, if you don't get connected to a group, you're not gonna develop significant relationships within the body of Christ. You'll also notice on the back, there is a list of our classes. And as you know, this fall we're gonna be offering the classes that correspond to our mission. We wanna reach, that's class 101, we'll equip you how to share your faith. We want you to grow in your walk with god sunday morning you come small group but we're going to offer class 201 which is really the foundations of how to grow in your walk with god we want to serve class 301 and then 401 and so on we're offering other classes as well so be a part of what god is doing here to help fulfill the mission that he has for our fellowship you know, this week I was perusing the internet, and I saw an article that caught my attention because it had the name God in it, and it was a music group. I didn't listen to them. I guess they stem back from the 80s, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Anybody ever heard of this group before or listened to them? Uh, <clears throat> not sure about them, but they have a a guitarist. His name is nickname is Flea, F-L-E-A, Flea, and um he mentioned something about God in the article, and I wanted to read it to you because I thought it tied into the message this morning. He says this, I'm a praying guy. I pray in the morning when I get up, when I go to bed, when I eat, <clears throat> and, when do, and when I do an interview. I'll just stop for a second, like, let me get out of the way and let go of everything. I'm not religious in any way, but I kind of believe in God And I try to live a life that honors my idea of what God is, like a divine energy, end quote. You know, many people today believe in God. Many people will affirm God, but it's not necessarily the God of the Bible. They have faith, but they're really not true believers. And you may ask the question this morning, how do I know if I'm a true believer? There's two ways to know this. Number one, Have you personally trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation? You don't just believe the facts, but you have personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And then second question you need to ask yourself is, do you see fruit or do you see evidence in your life that you're a believer? Again, the Bible talks about character fruit, conduct fruit. It talks about action fruit, attitude fruit. Fruit in the Bible is results. And so the Bible makes it very clear that we are to produce fruit in our life to demonstrate that we are genuine believers. So I invite you to turn to James chapter 2, because that is the theme of James chapter 2, that true faith produces good works. We are going through the book of James verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And the title of this message is, Saving Faith Produces Good Works. Now, James makes this very clear. He doesn't say that works save us, but that works give evidence that we are saved. And listen, James is not teaching this doctrine in isolation. If you look at the rest of the New Testament, you will find this concept that a true believer not only trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but they produce fruit or they perform good works. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, a well-known passage, Jesus on the day of judgment is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And here is what Jesus says to those who are his sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance." The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then Jesus says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison <clears throat> or go to visit you? The king will reply Truly I tell you, whenever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now, when you read this passage, it would seem that Jesus is teaching by doing these deeds that you're saved by your good life and that Jesus is gonna weigh your good against your bad on the day of judgment, and if your good outweighs your bad, you'll get into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying because it contradicts the rest of the New Testament that says we're saved by faith alone. What Jesus is doing here is simply pointing out that those who are genuine believers, who have genuine saving faith, are going to produce works. And all Jesus has to do is look at a person's works and he can tell whether or not they have genuine saving faith. And so Jesus here is affirming what James chapter two is affirming, that genuine saving faith produces good works. We see this again in John chapter 15, Jesus the night before he died was talking about the vine and the branch. And he said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then he says this, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. In other words, Jesus is saying that true believers produce fruit, and if you don't produce fruit, What's going to happen is he's going to cast aside those branches that don't bear fruit, and they're going to be put in the fire to be burned. That would be a representation of hell. In Acts chapter 26, we see this concept that true faith produces works. In verse 20, the apostle Paul says this, First to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, he says, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, that's the gospel message, and notice what he says, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In other words, if you're a genuine believer, this idea that I'm saved and I produce no fruit in my life is basically not found in the Scripture. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, we're all familiar with this section. Paul says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor. Grace is a gift of God, it's giving me what I don't deserve. And he says, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, verse 9, so that no one can boast. In other words, no one can be saved by works because it would create boasting. And so we all agree in verse 8 and 9 that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But a lot of people leave out verse 10. Notice what he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Here it is, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. Verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. Verse 10 says that a true believer produces good works in their life. Finally, one other passage that reaffirms what James chapter 2 teaches is Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Notice what Paul says about the Cretan people on that island. They claim to know God, here it is, but by their actions they deny Him. They claim to know God. They're religious. You have people in your life, in your sphere of influence that claim to know God, but you know what? They deny God by their actions, and then Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, I simply read these verses to show you that what James chapter 2 is teaching, that true faith produces works, is not taught in isolation, It's not taught just in the book of James. We see throughout the New Testament this reoccurring theme that genuine saving faith will produce fruit in a person's life. So in other words, if you don't see fruit in your life, you have to question whether or not you are really saved. Now you may ask the question, is it possible for a true Christian to be saved and produce fruit but to backslide in their life? And the answer is yes. We see this with King David. We see it with King Solomon. We see it with the Corinthian Christians. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul opens up that epistle and calls the Corinthians saints. They have been set apart by God for the purposes of God. He calls them saints, but then in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he chides them because they were not growing the way that they should have grown. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, Mere infants in Christ. He says, Look, when I came into Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and I gave you the gospel, you got saved. You were infants in Christ. And he says in verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food. What do you give infants in Christ? You give them milk, you give them pablum. But then notice the indictment that he presents on them. He says, Indeed, you are still not ready. In other words, you're still not growing. There was a point in time where I led you to Christ and you were infants in Christ. I gave you milk and that was fine. But he says, now that time has transpired, you're still infants in Christ. You're still drinking spiritual pablum. You're still wearing spiritual diapers. You're not growing. You are manifesting carnality. He says, you are still worldly in verse Three, he says, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? You're acting like the world with this fighting, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. He says, you're acting like the non-believer, mere humans. For when one says in verse 4, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? You're acting like the pagan non-believer. So the Corinthians obviously were not bearing good fruit. They were not growing in their walk with God. And so, yes, it is possible for a true Christian to get saved, bear fruit, and to have seasons of barrenness, to not be growing like they should. But make no mistake about it, all genuine believers will produce some fruit. If you don't see any fruit in a person's life, you have to question the root. You say, well, Mike, how do I know if they're really saved? If they're in a backslidden state, how do I know someone's really saved as opposed to whether or not they're a false believer? And the answer is we don't always know. Do you remember in the parables of the kingdom of Matthew 13, what did Jesus say? He says the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. And listen, the wheat and the tares look just alike, but what's going to happen on the day of judgment is Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the tares, the tares being the non-believer. And so we don't always know. We're not always going to be able to differentiate between a true believer and a false believer. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, great verse, says this. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. See, God knows those who are His. And listen, there are people that May look like they're believers, they may even say that they're believers, they've made a profession of faith, but we're going to be surprised on the day of judgment that some of them are not going to get into heaven. Jesus is going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Look at Judas. Judas played the role. Judas ostensibly appeared to be a believer, but at the end, Jesus called him a son of perdition. And that was scary because Jesus, I mean Judas rather, looked like he was saved, as it were. Not even the disciples thought Judas was lost, and yet he wasn't. And so there are people in the American church today and around the world that profess faith in Jesus Christ. They look the role of a Christian, they play the role of a Christian, but they're not genuine believers. On the other hand, there are going to be people, I believe, that have made a profession, but they're struggling in their walk. Maybe they're not growing like they should. And you know what? They're going to get to heaven because the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, back to James chapter 2. James, in this section of verses 14 through 26, is looking at the theme that genuine saving faith produces good works. Now, if you remember in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2, James addressed the poor. And basically what he was doing is he was confronting the poor in verses 1 through 13 because they were showing preferential treatment or discrimination towards the rich. And so he addresses them, and we looked at that. Now, in verses 14 through 26, he's not addressing the poor, he's addressing the rich. Because what the rich were doing is saying, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but they were indifferent towards the needs of the poor. They weren't helping the poor. And so James is going to challenge the rich here, and by the way, it's not just applicable to the rich but to all people, but in context, he's addressing the rich and he's saying to them, look, you may believe in God, but faith without works is dead. And notice James asks a question when he opens it up. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, see there's the verbal profession, he has faith but does not have works. Can his or that faith save him? To put it in the vernacular, if someone says they are saved but they don't produce works in their life, they may not be saved. And what James proceeds to do is give us five illustrations or five examples that genuine saving faith produces good works. Let's look at the first three examples that we looked at last week, and then we'll finish it up for this morning. The first example is a needy believer, a needy believer. Notice, if you will, verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it doesn't have works, it's dead by itself. And so the rich were neglecting the poor, and James says, look, if you have genuine saving faith, you're going to help a needy believer. You're going to help the poor. Now, again, as I said last week, we can't help everybody, and God doesn't call us to help everybody. And there are times where all of us are selfish. Maybe God speaks to us and we don't do what God asks us to do. But a genuine believer who trusts in Jesus Christ is not going to be indifferent to the needs of the poor. And again, he's talking about the basic necessities of life. Many of these Jewish Christians were scattered due to the probably persecution of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And so many of them lived on a subsistence level. Many of them struggled. And so James is saying a true believer is going to manifest their faith by helping those in need who are struggling. And by the way as a footnote the Bible makes it very clear that as Christians we are called to help the poor. In Proverbs chapter 22 verse 9 it says this, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. On the other hand the book of Proverbs says that if you turn a deaf ear to the cries of the poor, God will not hear your prayers. And so one of the ways that true, genuine, saving faith manifests itself in good works is helping a needy believer. A second example that he gives by way of review is an imaginary antagonist. Notice, if you will, verse 18. But someone will say, there's the imaginary antagonist. And here is what this antagonist says to James. James, you have faith and I have works. And so, this imaginary antagonist introduces to us two people. You have faith people and works people. Faith people are people that basically come to church and they say, oh, I have faith in Jesus Christ, but you don't see any fruit in their life. They don't demonstrate their faith by their works. On the other hand, you have works people. These are people that do a lot. They're philanthropic. They give to others. They serve others, but it's not connected to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, This imaginary antagonist says, there are faith people and there are works people. But James ends up rebutting this particular imaginary antagonist and says, look, faith and works are not mutually exclusive. They are mutually compatible because he says this, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. In other words, the two are not mutually exclusive. They work together in tandem with one another. If I have genuine saving faith, it is going to produce works. How do I know my faith is real? I can tell you all day my faith is real, but if I don't see the evidence, then my faith is not real. Suppose Marty and I are on an airplane and I put a backpack on Marty and I say, Marty, do you believe that this airplane or jumping out of this airplane can save you? Do you believe this parachute will save you if you jump out? And Marty says, Mike, absolutely, I believe that this parachute will save me. And I say, Marty, jump. And Marty says, I'm not jumping, Nimmer. Are you nuts? I said, jump or you're fired. No, I'm just kidding. I say, jump. He says, I don't want to jump. You see, at that point, Marty has faith but if it was real faith, he would jump. Why? Because his works would demonstrate that he really trusts in the parachute to save him. And so that's what James does to answer this imaginary antagonist. Well, there's a third illustration that he gives that genuine saving faith produces works, and that is demonic spirits. Notice, if you will, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Now, these rich Jewish Christians, they believed in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was a common Jewish affirmation. They believed in God. And he says, You believe that? That's good, but here's the problem. The demons also believe and they shudder. And he says, I'll go one step further. The demons not only affirm that God exists and that Jesus exists and that the Holy Spirit exists, they have more orthodox theology than liberal theologians. He says, I'll go one step further. The demons not only believe that, but they shudder. They bristle at the fact that Jesus is Lord because they know they're going to be cast in the lake of fire one day. And so he says to them, foolish individuals or foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? In other words, just because you believe in orthodox theology and you intellectually affirm that Jesus is Lord, that He died, that He rose from the dead, and you are orthodox in your convictions, that is not enough to save a person. And listen, the landscape of Christianity America is littered with people that intellectually agree with the facts of the gospel, but they're not saved. And listen, some of them intellectually agree, and some of them have felt conviction. Some of them have had emotional responses. But listen, the Bible says true saving faith involves the mind. In other words, you've got to agree with the facts that Jesus died and rose from the dead. It involves the emotions. You've got to be convicted about that. But then it involves your will. You have to personally receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. John chapter 1 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's not enough just to intellectually agree like demons or to be emotionally convicted. You must trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So he says, look, demon faith isn't enough. And we know demons agree with the facts and they emotionally bristle, but demons are going to the lake of fire. Why? Because they produce bad fruit. Well, he gives a fourth illustration, and this is where we pick up for this morning, and that is this. Genuine saving faith produces works by the example of Abraham. The example of Abraham. And Abraham would be the consummate illustration because James is writing to Jewish believers, and so the father of the Jewish race was Abraham, and so he takes them back to Abraham. And he says in verse 21, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, when He uses the word justified here. He's not talking about salvation here. The word justified is not a salvific term. Rather, the word means vindication. In other words, he's saying Abraham was vindicated when he offered up Isaac. He's not saying that Abraham was justified by his works. He's saying Abraham was vindicated when he offered up Isaac. Now, that word justified there, if you want an example of where it's used to refer to vindication, read Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus said, wisdom is vindicated by her children. Wisdom is proved or vindicated by her children. In other words, how do you know someone's wise? Look at what they produce. When you look at the fruit of their life, that vindicates whether or not they are wise. And so that's how James is using the word justified here in verse 22. He's talking about vindication. Wasn't Abraham our father vindicated by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? He showed his faith was genuine when he offered up Isaac. You see, verse 22, that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. In other words, Abraham proved his faith was genuine when he offered up Isaac on the altar. And then he mentions in verse 23, so the scripture was fulfilled that says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. And so what he's saying here is, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, if you remember, God called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, which is a, in the Persian Gulf area. We know from Joshua 24 that Abraham was a pagan idolater. He worshiped Shinar, the moon god. God revealed himself to Abraham, made him promises, and basically he said, Abraham, through you I'm going to bring about a great nation, and from your loins I'm going to bring about an heir. Now, the Jews loved Abraham because he was the father of the Jewish nation, and we know from Romans chapter 9 that from the nation of Israel comes the Messiah. And so basically, Abraham believed God's promise that from him would come a great nation and that he would be given a son. And so when he believed that promise in Genesis chapter 15, what does it say happened? God declared Abraham righteous. He imputed to Abraham righteousness. That's an accounting term and it simply means that God deposited into Abraham's spiritual account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, this raises a question that some of you may have asked before. How could Abraham have been saved in the Old Testament when Jesus Christ hadn't come yet? How could God have basically given to Abraham the righteousness of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ had not come yet. And the answer is this, God gave Abraham salvation on credit. Now watch this, when we as Christians, we look back at the cross, they look forward to the cross. And so when Abraham believed God, what happened was God took what Christ would do in the future and he gave Abraham salvation on credit. See, we as Christians, we look back at the cross The moment a person believes in Jesus Christ, they are justified. In the Old Covenant, when a person believed in God's promises and the limited knowledge that they had, God would take what Christ would do in the future and He would impute to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though Jesus Christ had not come yet. What God did was He gave them salvation on credit. We understand credit. In our country today, when you use a credit card, what you're doing is you're getting the goods now, but the payment will be made later. And so what Abraham got, the moment he believed God's promise that from him would come a great nation and that Isaac would come from his loins, even though him and Sarah didn't have a child, the moment he believed that promise, what happened? God imputed what Christ would do in the future to Abraham's account, and he was considered a friend of God. Now you say, well, how do I know Abraham's faith was genuine? Well, because he offered up Isaac. If you read Genesis chapter 15, it says this, Abraham believed God, it was credited as righteousness, but notice Genesis chapter 22, what does it say? It says that when God told Abraham to offer up his son, his only son, who would be the heir of promise, Abraham obeyed God. And so James' point is this, how do I know Abraham's faith in Genesis chapter 15 was genuine? The way I know Abraham's faith was genuine in Genesis 15 is because in Genesis chapter 22, he offered his son Isaac. It's not that offering Isaac saved Abraham, but it gave evidence that Abraham's faith was genuine. And so he says this, you see in verse 24 that a man is justified or vindicated by works and not by faith alone. Now, again, Catholics will argue with Protestants and say, see, it's very clear that we're not saved by faith alone. We know the battle cry of the Reformation was sola fide faith alone in Jesus Christ. And as Protestants, we believe that's what the Bible teaches. So you say, well, wait a minute, it says here we're not saved by faith alone. Again, how you harmonize this is the fact that what James is saying is genuine saving faith produces good works. How do we know that Abraham's faith was genuine in chapter 15? He offered up Isaac on the altar. In fact, Marty Luther, or I should say Martin Luther. <laughs> remember what Martin Luther said? He said, we are saved by faith alone. Watch this. But it is not the faith that is alone. Because they accuse Martin Luther of teaching work salvation. And he said, no, it is faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that saves us, but it is not the faith that is alone. And so Abraham becomes another illustration that genuine saving faith produces good works. It produces a life of obedience. Now, you know people and I know people that claim to have faith, but they're not living in a lifestyle of obedience. The question is, are they saved? And the question is, I don't know, or the answer is, I don't know. Sometimes we don't know. As I said, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So the question is, well, how do I know if they're saved or not? Sometimes you're not going to know. And what God wants us to do in love is maybe encourage that person or challenge that person to say this, I know you claim to be a believer, but where's the evidence in your life? Some of you have children. Who have reached the age of accountability, and they've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but they're not living for the Lord. You may have a parent that is in that condition. You may have a coworker who says they're Christians, but they're not walking with God at all. And so what should you do? Well, pray for them, but also when you get opportunity and a spirit of love, you want to challenge them and say, Hey, the Bible says that a true believer is going to produce a life of obedience. You don't tell them they're not saved because that's not your place to judge them. But listen, you don't tell them that they are saved because you could be giving false assurance to that person. What you do is you encourage themselves to do what 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. One of my good friends that got saved when I pastored in New Jersey is a guy named Steve Woody. You'll notice his picture on the screen. That's me and him. We were doing a homeless outreach in Philadelphia, Love Park. And Steve Woody, his wife there up on the screen, came to me one Sunday. He didn't go to church with her. He wasn't a believer. She was one. She came out of the Catholic church. And she said, my husband isn't saved. And so we prayed for him. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take Steve out for some wings. So we went out to wings and we talked. He wasn't hostile to Christianity, but just wasn't a believer. And then he was going to get his oil changed in his car, and unbeknown to him, he ended up going to a Christian establishment, one of those Jiffy Louvre places. And the guy that owned it was a committed believer, and on the front counter, he had put in gospel tracks there, and Steve Woody picked it up, he read it, and led himself to Christ. And he started coming to church. And I'll tell you what, He had a miraculous transformation. He had genuine faith in Christ. How do I know? Because, listen, his life was transformed, the fruit that he produced. In fact, he wanted to be baptized so bad, he filled up his bathtub with water and he baptized himself. And he says, Nimmer, is that all right? I said, I guess so. But we had Bible studies at his house. And listen, you could see the growth in his life. He was sharing his faith with other people. You see, James says that genuine saving faith produces works. Look at Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise in Genesis 15. How do we know that Abraham's faith was genuine? James says, look what he did in Genesis chapter 22. He offered up Isaac. Now, Isaac alone wasn't necessarily the proof, the absolute proof, because listen, it's more than one act of obedience, But Isaac represents Abraham's life of obedience, even though, listen, Abraham struggled. Abraham had lapses of faith, and that's encouraging to us. We may show that we're saved by the fruit that we produce, but listen, we're all going to struggle with producing good fruit at times. Well, there's one other example that he gives, and this is our fifth one, that shows us that genuine faith produces works, and that is Rahab. He goes from a Jew, Abraham, now to a Gentile. And this could have been potentially offensive to the Jews because they hated Gentiles. They believed that they were fodder for the fire. They hated Gentiles, let alone a woman who was a prostitute. Notice what he says in verse 25. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified or vindicated by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route. Now listen, we know that Rahab was a pagan non-believer. She lived in the city of Jericho, and she was not only an innkeeper, she was a prostitute, which by the way shows us that God has a heart for the dregs of society. God has a heart for the outcast. God has a heart for the prostitute, the homosexual, the pedophile. God has a heart for the drunkard. God has a heart for those who have been divorced five, six times. Listen, I don't care where a person is, God's grace always is greater than that person's sin. And we must never forget that. God saved Rahab. Rahab was in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She married a Jew and eventually entered the genealogy of Christ, which shows us the grace of God. But James says she's an example that true faith produces works. Why? Because at some point, Rahab came to believe in the God of Israel. Israel was conquering nations. She had heard that God took Israel out of Egypt and was conquering other nations, and she was scared spitless. And you know what? She believed in God. How do we know that Rahab's faith was genuine? Because when Israel sent the spies into the city of Jericho, what did she do when the authorities were after those spies? It says that she hid the spies and then she sent them another route. And so her faith was demonstrated not by her walking an aisle, going to a Billy Graham crusade, or raising your hand at VBS. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But listen, ultimately Rahab demonstrated her faith in the fact that she hid the spies because true saving faith will produce fruit. Now, what do we learn from these two illustrations of Abraham and Rahab, a Jew and a Gentile? There is one way of salvation in the Old Testament and New. There are some Christians today that would say, well, in the Old Testament, you're saved by works. In the New Testament, New Covenant, you're saved by faith in Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. Woven throughout the fabric of Scripture is this one principle, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk chapter 2. We are saved by faith in the Old Testament. We are saved by faith in the New Testament. There are no two ways of salvation, and we see this through Abraham and Rahab. They are both genuine believers. And so what have we learned this morning? Genuine saving faith produces works. And James gives us five lines of evidence, five examples. First of all, a needy believer. Secondly, an imaginary antagonist. Thirdly, demonic spirits. Fourthly, Abraham. And then finally, Rahab. And then he sums up in verse 26 his argument by using another illustration. And he says this, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. Now listen, we've all been to funerals before. The reason why that body lies there lifeless is because the soul has left the body. The soul is what animates the person. And by the way, God never intended the soul to leave the body. That's the consequence of sin. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. God never intended that. It's the curse of sin. And that's why God is going to reunite the soul and the body one day. Your soul that's in heaven... He's going to raise your body and reunite the two. But when a person dies, that is the wages of sin is death. It was never God's intention. And so James says, just as the soul without the body is dead, he says faith without works is dead. If you say you're a Christian, but you're not producing fruit in your life, you better check the foundation to see if you're saved. Now, as we close, what does this mean to us? Number one, examine yourself. Are you a genuine believer this morning? I would be amiss if I didn't share with you the fact that true saving faith produces good works and that you need to examine yourself. Because I said, a lot of people in the American church profess faith in Jesus Christ, but they're not genuinely saved. And I don't want you to be among that crowd where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And there are a lot of people in the American church that are going to hear those words. They are deceived. They think they're saved because they had an experience or they raised their hand when they were seven years old, but they're not producing fruit. Coming to church is one sign, but listen hell is going to be populated with people who went to church their whole life. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Now, it's one of the signs, it's one of the fruits. And so my encouragement to you this morning is ask yourself this question, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you received Him? And then secondly, have you produced fruit in your life to demonstrate that you are genuinely saved? And then the second question I would ask is this, if you're a true believer, God wants us to produce fruit. In fact, in John 15, it says that the Father prunes the branches so that it will bear more fruit so that the Father would be glorified. Listen, some of you are bearing a lot of fruit and praise the Lord for that. Some of you could do more. God understands if you have limitations physically. And as I said, fruit is not just doing things, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is a form of fruit. So it's not just what we do, it's who we are. Some of you could be bearing more fruit. Some of you maybe need to tone it down. Maybe you're doing too much for the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, Jesus said to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, I have not found your deeds to be complete in my sight. In other words, some Christians can do more for the Lord. And God wants us not to come to church on Sunday and to sit, soak, and sour. He's not calling us to just be Sunday Christians only. He wants us to get involved if we're physically able because we all have gifts, we all have talents, we all have a unique niche within the body of Christ. And so, if you're here, maybe you have genuine faith and you have fruit to back up that faith. But listen, how much fruit are you bearing? Maybe God is calling you to bear more fruit. Maybe He's calling you to get involved. And listen, sometimes fruit is taking care of your parent. I've talked to people a woman called me from the radio ministry. She was sort of broken up. She's like, Mike, I'm struggling. She says, I have to take care of my disabled husband. She says, I've been doing this for years. It's very difficult. I sometimes can't make it to church. And she said, I feel guilty. Am I going to lose my salvation? And I said, absolutely not. And I said, I want you to know that you taking care of your husband who is sick, I want you to know that God sees that as just as spiritual as what I'm doing. God doesn't. God sees those things. Because He knows our circumstance and our situation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word to us. I thank You, Lord, for reminding us that genuine saving faith produces works. Father, my prayer is that we would be a church that continues to bear fruit. More fruit that brings glory to Your name. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that may not be saved, I pray that you'd speak to their heart. And Father, they would examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Father, we don't want to create constant instability, but at the same time, Father, we do want to warn because we know that, Lord, the church is filled with people that are like Judas, who ostensibly appear to be saved, who outwardly identify with the church, but they're not genuinely saved. Even the disciples did not suspect that Judas was a false believer. Father, I pray that for the American church, root out those who are false believers. Father, I pray that they would come to genuine saving faith in you, that you would expose that. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's someone here that you're prompting to bear more fruit. Father, maybe it's reading the Bible for the first time during the week, praying, or Father, getting involved in a ministry, whatever it may be. We thank you. And I pray that we would be a fruit-bearing church for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together as we close. Don't forget as we go out this week, we are salt and light. There are ABC cards out there. Use them when you go out to eat, when you're going through a drive through Let's be witnesses. Remember, Try to share your faith or to reach out with one person each month. Each one, reach one. God will use you. He has gifted you to do that. And come back next week. We're going to talk about something that is in a cage. It's called your tongue. God has created a natural cage. And many times, if you're like me, it gets out of the cage, right? We're going to talk about the tongue next week. So come back. God bless you. Let's worship together.